0: Today is Palm Sunday. This is the first day of Holy Week, uh, which is the week of events in the life of Christ, uh, beginning with Palm Sunday through Good Friday, where we celebrate or remember Christ's death, and then concluding with Easter Sunday, where we celebrate Christ's resurrection. But again, today is Palm Sunday, when we remember that Sunday, when Jesus, before his death and resurrection, uh, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and was welcomed like a king by the crowds. It was the first day of the week of the Passover festival, and so the city of Jerusalem was jam-packed. It was completely full. So many had come to celebrate or observe the Passover. And so Jesus too is is on his way into Jerusalem, and news of his soon arrival reaches Jerusalem. And so as Jesus rides into the city on a donkey, the crowds are they're waving palm branches, they're crying out hosanna or save us. For they believe that Jesus was the King of Israel, the promised Messiah, God's King. Now this event is actually recorded for us in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But today I want to read to you, read with you, the account in the book of Matthew. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 21, Matthew 21. And we will read verses 1 through 11. Matthew 21. Verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, verse 2, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so on this day, the crowds recognized that Jesus was a prophet, yes, but by throwing down their cloaks for him to ride over, by waving palm branches, and by using Psalm 118 as their anthem to welcome him into the city, the crowd showed that they recognized Jesus to be God's promised king. And their excitement is not unjustified. There's a reason that they're really excited about this. They are thinking of the message of the Old Testament prophets. Very early in the Old Testament, the theme of a, a great coming king began to develop God promised Abraham that kings would come from him. Jacob prophesied that from his son Judah there would be one who would come to whom would belong the obedience of the peoples. Balaam prophesied that a scepter would rise out of Israel. And then Micah is famous for those words he spoke, not to a person, but to the city of Bethlehem, when he said, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days." And then, of course, there's Jeremiah, which Brian has taken us through. Jeremiah said, The days are coming when the Lord will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. So God had promised Israel a king whose reign would mean safety and security. And that sounds really good. It sounds wonderful, far better than Israel's situation when Jesus rode into Jerusalem because they were under the oppression of the Roman government. Wouldn't it be great for these people if Jesus of Nazareth was God's promised, long-awaited king who was going to deliver, deliver them to a place, to a, to a context of rest and safety and security? And of course, the wise men, they thought that Jesus was this king too. Do you remember what they asked Herod, when they came into Israel looking for the one who belonged to the star, they said, Where is he who has been born, King of the Jews? And so it sure seems like Jesus is God's promised, long awaited king. And so the crowds are just ecstatic about this. And yet, do they understand the kind of salvation that this king is going to bring? Do they recognize the kind of salvation that they really need? and what it will require of this king to provide that kind of salvation for them. And more importantly today, do we understand that? This morning, as we remember the day when Israel welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem as king, I want to make sure we understand the salvation that this king brought. And to do this, I want us to look together for the 13th and final time at the book of Judges. Last time we were together, we finished Judges chapter 21, and maybe you thought the series was over, but we need to do a little bit of review and kind of summarizing everything and looking at where or how this helps us understand God's King as well. So turn with me to Judges 21, verse 25. Judges 21, verse 25. You see, like like the people of Jesus' day, Israel in the days of Judges lived in God's land, but under foreign oppression. And God saved Israel in those days through Judges. But this salvation, though it was good, was inadequate. What Israel really needed became completely clear at the very end of the book. Okay, you're looking at Judges 21-25. Let's read that together. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So, what does Israel really need? Israel needs a king. Israel would be better off with the salvation that God would provide through His king. But what would that kind of superior or better salvation look like? One way to answer that question is to look back at the salvation that God has provided throughout the book of Judges. It's a it's a good and necessary salvation but it is inadequate to deal with the problem that clearly persists at the end of the book of Judges. This superior salvation is the one that's coming through God's king. And so today, as we bring our Judges series to a close, I want to look at Judges to answer this question. The question is, how will the God who saved through his judges save through his king? So I wanna start by thinking with you again about the structure of the book of Judges. Now, if that scares you, this is one of the most clearly structured books in the entire Bible. And if you were at any of our uh, Judges sermons or you've read the book of Judges even once, then you know the answer to this question. Okay. What is the most prominent feature, prominent structural feature in the book of Judges? Okay. It's this cycle, right? In Judges 1 and 2, each tribe kind of goes out to, to take their inheritance, their land inheritance that God promised them. And the, the tribes start failing in this because they're, they've been unfaithful to God. And so then in Judges 3 to 16, Israel enters this cycle of of judgment under oppressive nations, salvation through a judge, rest, and sin. Then judgment, salvation, rest, sin, and on and on it goes over and over and over again. Round and round with God raising up a judge each time to save them. This goes on from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 16. So why does God do that? Okay, why does God save Israel again and again and again in the book of Judges? Okay, it's true that they do, when the, when the judgment gets really bad, when it becomes unbearable, they do cry out to God, they do groan under their judgment, but they are not repentant. Okay, Judges makes that clear. They just become tired of the consequences of their sin. And yet, even though they don't repent, God saves them every time. He doesn't wait until Israel has completely cleansed herself from idols, He doesn't wait till Israel has done lots of good things. He doesn't even always wait till Israel wants or asks to be saved. Far after our mercy would have been exhausted, God's mercy continues. When we would have said, forget this, and moved on, God sends another rescuer. And so the pattern of God's salvation through judges is not to wait until the people who need saving become good enough to save. If God had saved Israel only when she deserved it, then there never would have been a cycle because Israel never deserved it. And they never had. Okay? If you were listening, as Brian read this morning from Deuteronomy 9, the main point that that speech the Lord is making, the main point is that you are terrible people. I'm going to do some good things for you, but don't forget, it's not because of you. You guys are awful. Okay? That is the main point of that whole passage. Okay? Israel's righteousness was never the reason that God brought them into the land, and her righteousness is never the reason that he repeatedly saves them. And so then again, why does God save Israel again and again and again? Deuteronomy 9, as Brian read today, also said this, not because of your righteousness, but that he, the Lord, may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So why did God bring undeserving Israel into the land and then save undeserving Israel repeatedly with his judges? Okay. Why did he do that? Because of his covenant faithfulness. In his mercy, his grace, and his kindness, God had committed himself by covenant to Abraham's descendants. And so although they were always unworthy of these blessings, God saves them again and again and again. And so the, the pattern of God's salvation that we see in the book of Judges is, is that God saves Israel not because she was faithful to God, not because Israel was righteous, but because God was faithful to his covenant. Okay. And as we get to the days of Jesus, as he, as he rides into Jerusalem, Israel is no more deserving at this time either. Jesus comes announcing the kingdom of God, riding on a donkey. But again, God's king had not come with God's salvation for the righteous But for sinners. Do you remember Jesus in his lifetime here on earth spent so much time with known sinners that the really good people of his day hated him for it? And his response to these critics was to say, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so Jesus extends this pattern of bringing salvation not for the righteous, but for sinners. And the same is true today. God's salvation for the undeserving continues this morning. It is by grace, we learn in the New Testament, that we have been saved through faith. And that this is not our own doing. It is the the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. And this is really good news for us. Good news for all of us, because all of us are sinners. Like Israel, we prefer self-rule. We prefer a world where we get to do what we want, and so the only reason that anyone can be confident today of, of God's salvation for us is the covenant faithfulness of God. Now, I hope, I hope you've had a good week this last week. Okay? I, I, I didn't have a good day yesterday. Our, our power went out on Friday night at midnight. It didn't come back till yesterday at 7.30 p.m. So all day yesterday was not a great day. Okay? But that's not what I mean by I hope you had a good week. Okay? I hope you had a good week, and this is what I mean. I hope it's been a week where you've turned from your sin, where you've been quick to forgive, where you've sacrificed to help other people. I hope that's been true this week. But even if you have, those good things are not reasons this morning for you to be confident of God's salvation for you. Because it could very well be that next week will be very different than this week. Next Sunday, you may sit in the same seat because you all do that. Next Sunday, you may sit in the same seat and yet be discouraged because you didn't turn away from sin. You didn't forgive quickly. And you didn't sacrifice to help others. And then, where is your reason to be confident of God's salvation? Now, the testimony of the book of Judges is that like His salvation through the judges, the salvation of God's King will depend upon God's covenant faithfulness, not our righteousness. Kids, here's your first two blanks, that number one. The salvation of God's king will depend upon God's covenant faithfulness, not our righteousness. And the greatest display of God's covenant faithfulness is when he sent one last rescuer, his greatest one, Jesus Christ. In his life as one of us, he fulfilled the righteous requirements for God's salvation so that all who trust in him could receive God's blessing through his greatest rescuer. Now, I want to stop there just for a minute because I wonder if maybe some of you have this question. And maybe you're thinking something like this, Phil, I'm not a Jew, and so why should I care about the way God saved the Israelites, the Jews, thousands of years ago? Why does that matter to me? And that's a good question. Okay, Good question. And a, a longer answer would be better and more wonderful. Okay, But for now, let me say these few things. From the very beginning, it was God's plan that the blessing of his salvation, which he promised to Abraham and his descendants, it was God's plan that that would be for people of all nations. In Genesis 17, God says these words to Abraham. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude Nations, And so before Abraham has any children, not even one, God says, you will be the father of many nations, a multitude of nations. How does that happen? And again, I'm jumping over a lot here. But in the New Testament, Paul explains in Galatians 3 that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And so you see, you don't have to be a Jew or become a Jew to be a son of Abraham and inherit the blessings that God promised to him. What do you have to do? You have to believe the gospel. You must believe that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, loved you and gave himself for you. And so when we read the Old Testament, we're not reading what God did for someone else. Okay? We are reading a story that includes us. The story is not about us. It's about God. It's his story, but we're in it. And God in this story is slowly and progressively revealing his glory in his plan to save his people. And we can be a member of that people and enjoy his salvation, if we believe in Jesus Christ. Now, Judges is a really early part in that story. And in this good but inadequate salvation that God gives through the Judges, God reveals something of the glory of his coming salvation he has planned for his people, for all the sons and daughters of Abraham, for all those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. And the first facet of that glorious salvation is that it always depends on God's covenant faithfulness, not our righteousness. Now, Think again with me about the book of Judges. You've read it many times. We've had a series about this. When God raised up a judge to save his people, was that salvation final? Was the salvation that God brought through one of his judges, was it final? This is not a trick question. It's also not hard. The answer is no, of course not. How do we know that? Well, because if God's salvation through a judge Had been final, then there never would have been this cycle that we've just highlighted in the book. Israel would not have needed to be saved again, but God's salvation through a judge needed to be repeated again and again and again. His salvation through a judge was good, but it was inadequate. And so think about this what prevented God's salvation through a judge from being final? Why didn't it last longer? Why didn't it last forever? Or think about it this way. How long did God's salvation last when he brought it through the judges? Ever thought about that? How long did it last when he brought his salvation through the judges? Turn with me to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. How long did God's salvation last when he brought it through a judge? Judges 3, verse 11. We read these words. So the land had rest 40 years. So this judge, Othniel, has just delivered God's people. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And if you were to skip over to Judges 4, verse 1, you would see these words. And Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud, that's another judge, after he died. And then in Judges 8, we read these words. As soon as Gideon died. Israel turned again and whored after the Baals. Now, each judge was not an equally good influence on Israel. But when they were a good influence, the death of that judge meant that God's people would soon turn away from God. God's salvation through a judge didn't last forever because God's judges didn't live forever. And when they died, the people went back to their idols, And so if, if there could be a judge, if there could be a rescuer that lived forever, whose good influence on God's people could extend forever, then that salvation would be better. Now, in some cases, God's salvation through the judges didn't last forever. Yes, because the judge died, but there was another reason. God's salvation through the judges was also limited by the fact that the judges needed to be saved themselves. For example, in, in Judges chapter 8, Okay, in the description of Gideon, Gideon actually calls for the people to bring him their gold, and he makes an ephod out of it, and he puts it in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel whores after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. And so you've also got the judge Jephthah, who by all appearances seems to have offered his own daughter as a human sacrifice to God. And then you've got Samson, who became involved intimately with non-Israelite women. And so you can look at each of these judges, and it's clear that each of these judges needs to be saved themselves. And so as long as Israel's saviors, Israel's judges, are limited by death and limited by their own need to be rescued, then the salvation through those judges is never going to be final. Now Isaiah, the prophet, looked forward and saw a better savior when he prophesied that a son would be born who would sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the angel who spoke to Mary when he announced the baby in her womb said this, that this baby will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give, it, give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is a much better Savior because he brings an eternal, better salvation. This is the eternal God in flesh who will live forever. But Jesus is also the better Savior who brings a better, eternal salvation because he always thought and spoke and acted in a way that was in obedience to his Father. He never undermined the salvation he had come to bring through what he did, said, or thought so committed and so passionate was Jesus to obey his Father that he said these words, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Later he says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And so unlike in Judges, God's salvation through Jesus will never be limited by Jesus' struggle to obey God. This Savior will never need saving himself. And so God's salvation through his King, through this King, will last forever. The salvation of God's king will be final. Kids, there's your second blank. Number two, God's salvation, the salvation of God's king will be final. Now, there's one more reason that God's salvation through a judge wasn't final. Okay, we talked about how the judges died and how the judges were unfaithful. The last one I've held back is it leads us right into the next description of God's salvation. But The other thing that limited the salvation through a judge, making it not final, was the fact that the salvation through a judge was incomplete. Think again with me about the book of Judges. God's salvation through a judge was good as far as it went, but it wasn't complete. You see, the problem wasn't just that God's salvation didn't last long enough. The problem was also that God's salvation through the judges did not save Israel in every way that they needed to be saved. How do we know this, okay? How do we know that God's salvation through his judge was incomplete? Again, this is not a hard question. This isn't one of those pictures you gotta look at to find the one thing that's wrong. Judges is not like that. It makes it super obvious what's wrong, okay? How do we know that God's salvation through a judge was incomplete? Well, for one, again, there was that cycle, right? If, if God's salvation through a judge was complete and it saved God's people in every way that they needed, then, then one salvation would have been sufficient. If God is saving them through a judge over and over and over, then these judges are inadequate good but inadequate saviors. If this was complete salvation, there would have been no cycle. But also we know that God's salvation through the judges was inadequate because by the end of the book, is Israel getting better and better and better? Now, if you were here for our description of Judges 17-21, to you realize that Israel is worse than ever at the end of the Judges. In fact, their sin matches and even seems to surpass the famous sinners of the city of Sodom. And so if God's people are ever going to be secure in his blessing, then God must save his people, not just from their enemies, the outside enemies, but save them completely. So what does complete salvation look like? What would that look like if God went beyond what the judges did and saved his people completely? Well, John gives us a glimpse of what that looks like. You remember his his vision in Revelation? In Revelation 21, John says he hears a loud voice and he says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And so complete salvation looks like God dwelling with his people as their king in his kingdom where there's no sin, no sorrow, and no death. Where everything has been made new. And a people made new through Christ, for Christ, in his new creation. And so the salvation that God's king will bring will not only be or depend upon God's faithfulness. Not only will it be final, but it will also be complete. Kids, there's your number three. The salvation of God's king will be complete. I hope that description of what God has promised to us through his king encourages you. I mean, I, I can think back over the last seven days, and I can think of specific things that I did, things that I had to ask my kids to forgive me for. And those are the same things that I've asked them to forgive me for previously. And so it encourages me to know that the days of my struggle against my flesh that loves myself and loves to rule, the days of that struggle are numbered. And after today, the number will be one smaller. And that's exciting. Or maybe as you think about the glory of complete salvation, maybe your thoughts have gone to the evil that we saw once again in another school shooting. Or maybe you're thinking of the terminal illness that your family is facing. There are reminders all around us every moment of every day that this world is old and it is broken. But God has promised that this will not always be the way things are. He is making everything new. Now, we think about the people and Judges. At the end of the book of Judges, their situation is a far cry from complete salvation. They have not been saved completely. At the end of the book, we can tell, all right, it's not going to be through the Judges that God does this, but rather through his king. So how will God actually do that? Like, what will this king do to actually bring about that better, greater, more perfect, more complete salvation? And the answer to that is our final description of God's salvation through his king. How will God's king save God's people completely? Now, in the book of Judges, we don't get a full answer to this. The judge or the book of Judges only hints at how this ruler is going to do that. But think about how the book ends. Okay, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So, so Israel would be better off with a king. That much is obvious. But what does that mean? Okay, does that just mean that this king is going to do a an even better job of defeating Israel's enemies. Is that what that means? Okay. This, this king can't just be a super judge and do the same things they did, but do them better. He's got to do something else. Okay. The judges saved Israel by leading Israelite soldiers into battle to defeat their oppressive enemies. They saved Israel on the battlefield. But that, that means of salvation, leadership on the battlefield, has never been enough to save Israel from herself, to save her in every way that she needs to be saved. The the complete salvation that God requires or that God offers will require more than just leadership on the battlefield. And the book of Judges makes this very obvious. And that's why this affirmation of a king here is connected to the people's addiction to self-rule, doing what is right in their own eyes. The king would save Israel completely, and he would do so through more than leadership on the battlefield. Kids, this is your final two blanks, your final three blanks. The salvation of God's king will be through more than leadership on the battlefield. Judges tells us that and no more. Whatever he does, it will be better and more than this because this has not been enough. If the crowds of Jerusalem that day thought that God's king would save by leadership on the battlefield, like judges of old, Jesus knew better. Jesus knew what it would take to save the crowds in front of him completely. In fact, just before his dramatic entrance in Jerusalem, on the way to this city, Jesus had told his disciples. He'd said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus knew that saving God's people in every way they needed to be saved would require his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. Jesus knew that what was coming was going to be difficult. He knew it would require his death as he rode into the city on a donkey. Now, there will come a day, as Chris read earlier when he read from Revelation 19, there will come a day when Jesus will lead his people, when he will lead in battle and defeat all his enemies, everyone who stands against him. We read that earlier, and it was very dramatic and and hard description to read. But this week in the city of Jerusalem, Jesus would come first by humbling himself to die on the cross. Jesus would be a mighty warrior, but God's king was first a humble savior, saving sinners by his suffering and his death and his resurrection. Thank God that Jesus came first as a humble savior, savior, and not as first as a mighty warrior against sinners. Thank God that he came first as a humble savior so that when he defeats all his enemies, we who trust in him will have no reason to fear his judgment for he is our king. Now, as we finish this morning, I want to make just two simple additional applications for us. Earlier today, we sang Psalm 2. If you've been around here for a while, we love singing that song, sing it regularly, but it might have been new to you. In this psalm, there is a description of of the rebellion of the nations against God and against his anointed, the rebellion of the nations against God's Messiah. And this psalm finishes with two things, a command and a promise. The command is to kiss the son or submit to the God's anointed. And the promise is blessing for all those who do. And today, that command and that promise given so many years ago is still open to all of us. If you have not submitted to God's king, to Jesus Christ, then you are against God and his anointed. And God says that you will perish in the way. But the good news is that there is hope. Not by running away from God. That that will not save you. You have to run to him and to his king. You see, Jesus Christ, God's son, became one of us. He always did what was right. He died on the cross for our sins as our substitute under our judgment, and he was raised from the dead on the third day. And so if you turn from your sins and trust in Christ as your only hope for rescue, then God will give you refuge from his wrath through his king. He will forgive your sins. He will treat you uh, as if Christ's righteousness were your own. He will welcome you into his presence. He will begin making you new and on and on and on go the list of blessings that God has promised to his people, the people who turn to his king. And so I beg you this morning to listen to the warning and the promise of Psalm 2. And I want you to know that this option is not always open. There will come a day when it will be closed. Jesus came the first time as a humble savior, but he will come again as a mighty warrior. And so today is the day for you to bow your knee to God's King. But now for the rest of us, for, for those who are trusting in Christ this morning, for God's people, I hope that through this time of looking at your King, I hope you've been encouraged. We are so fortunate to live under his reign. Our King's wise instruction is the perfect guide for our lives. Our King's promises are a sure hope in all things, and his blessings His blessings satisfy completely. And still, still, there's, despite all of the good things he has done for us and we receive even today, we have so much to look forward to when he returns. But as I was thinking about Christ as my king, I wonder if we really think about Christ as our king as much as or in the way that he deserves. I wonder if his reign sometimes just feels kind of abstract. It's more of, a, more of a nice, comforting idea, while other causes and initiatives matter much more to us. But Christ's kingship is not abstract. It is not a nice idea. His rule is more real than any president, any dictator, or any monarch. And so as much as you may like or dislike the changes planned by political leaders above you at all levels of government today, remember that the significance of their rule in your life is nothing nothing compared to the significance of Christ's rule in your life. Now what our government does and who leads it is important. Please don't misunderstand me. Misunderstand me. But just it doesn't and shouldn't matter to us and to our lives the way that Christ's rule does. My prayer for us today is that we would never be known more for our political affiliation than we are for our allegiance to Christ. He deserves our allegiance more than anything else or anyone else. As we sang earlier today, we said, every day we have on earth is given by our King. So let us give our life, our all to love and to follow Him. Let us care more about serving Him in our homes, in our work, in our schools, in our relationships, in our entertainment, in every part of our lives, so that the glory of our King might be known in every place where people are loyal to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to gather around your word. We thank you for the story, the true story of how Christ came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, welcomed by the crowds, but knowing what was coming throughout the rest of that week. Lord, thank You that His salvation is so much better than the salvation provided through Your judges. It's good for us to see the limits of what can be done when the heart is not addressed. Thank You that Christ's salvation, Your salvation through Him, goes far beyond what the judges could do. Thank You that Your salvation saves us in every way that we need to be rescued. Thank you that He, Christ, your King, is risen from the dead and that we who trust Him are alive and being made new with new hopes, new affections, new eternity. Lord, we thank you for your King this morning. We pray that we would live for His glory. Thank you that our confidence of salvation through him, is not based upon our own righteousness, but upon his righteousness. Thank you for your kindness and grace and faithfulness to us. And I pray today that you would make us a people who are known for our allegiance to your Son, to our King. In Jesus' name, amen.